from PRX. Today on Studio 360. To me, I almost didn't think of it as a publishing company. When I look back at it now, it was like a school. It was a great school for songwriters. The Manhattan songwriting factory that produced so much 1960s pop. The atmosphere was just so conducive to writing songs. The Brill Building, the latest in our series on New York icons. Plus, oh, the newest craze in the teenage world is a mug is and her. A weird forgotten song from the Brill Building era. And we'll do what everyone does. We'll both be mug mates. Exactly why does somebody try to start a fad of teenagers owning matching coffee mugs? That's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. The pop music industry really got going in the early 1900s in New York City in a few blocks known as Tin Pan Alley. Irving Berlin and George and Ira Gershwin and dozens of other composers and lyricists turned out tunes that became the great American songbook. Come on and hear, like come on and hear, like Alexander's ragtime Tin Pan Alley was originally on West 28th Street in Manhattan, but as rents increased, it crept uptown. And by the late 1950s, the New York pop music epicenter was 1619 Broadway, this 11-story Art Deco tower, the Brill Building. It's the latest in our series on New York icons. Studio 360's Tommy Bazarian has the story. The famous Brill Building, Broadway and 49th Street. Headquarters for songwriters, pluggers, singers, band leaders, and music publishers, all hopefully buying and selling next season's hit tunes. The Brill Building was built in 1931, the same year as the Empire State Building. In the midst of the Depression, the building's owners leased cheap offices to whoever they could find which happened to be music publishers, agents, and musicians. 78 music publishers list offices here, some owners of vast music catalogs, many just a desk in someone else's waiting room. By the 50s, the Brill Building was packed with music industry professionals, many of them veterans of Tin Pan Alley. There were literally in the Brill Building dozens of publishers. Mary Rolfing is a professor of communications at Boise State University. There were musicians hanging around, and there were A&R people. You had people who represented record companies. You had booking agents. Ken Emerson is the author of Always Magic in the Air, the bomb and brilliance of the Brill Building era. You had small, cheesy record studios where you could make a demo, which you could then shop. Almost every facet of the hit-making process was located at the Brill Building, and they all worked together, like an assembly line a factory for churning out songs. These unknown writers oftentimes would come through the doors at the Brill Building, take the elevator to the top, and start hitting the offices of publishers. Would you like to hear my song? Can I sell this song to you? 
People would start on the 10th floor of the Brill Building and go down floor by floor, and they would sell the same song 10 times. That publisher might then take it to managers of artists who should record this song. You could get your publisher, you could get your record company, you could get the cheap recording to sell. And somebody was there to distribute it, and sometimes that could happen in a matter of days. The Brill Building was all music people. That's the late Ellie Greenwich. She's speaking with the record executive Joe Smith in 1986. Greenwich worked with her husband, the lyricist Jeff Barry, in the Brill Building from about 1962 to 1964. There was such an excitement going on all the time. That you walked in, I mean, you were riding in the elevators, you were riding at Jack Dempsey's next door. It didn't matter. The atmosphere was just so conducive to writing songs. The energy was incredible. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. Barry Mann was part of another married songwriting team with his wife, the lyricist Cynthia Weil. He's also speaking with Joe Smith in 1986. We could write the song cut a demo the next day, get it over to the, to the, to the A&R man or the artist, and the, the damn thing could be had three weeks later. I mean, shit, I remember I must have written about 50 songs that year, the first year, or maybe 40 songs, just because we loved writing. The Brill Building was already packed with industry people by the late 50s. So as more and more aspiring publishers moved in, a few satellite buildings popped up in the surrounding neighborhood. The most notable of these by far was located a block and a half north at 1650 Broadway. Historian Ken Emerson. 1650 Broadway was a more nondescript, almost anonymous building, and consequently, the rents were a lot cheaper, and it was sort of the younger, hipper building. People talk about the Brill Building as a genre as much as a single place, and the tenants of 1650 Broadway were a huge part of that. The building was home to a publishing company called Alden Music. It was founded in 1958 by industry veteran Al Nevins and a young publisher named Don Kirshner. Al Nevins was a very experienced musician. Don was just an aspiring entrepreneur who had a real feel for what could sell. In 1958, Kirshner saw an opening in the music industry. Elvis Presley no longer has that rock and roll beat. The tempo is hup, two, three, four for Private Presley. Elvis Presley was in the Army. Shirley Lewis was banned from the airwaves for marrying his 13-year-old cousin before he was formally divorced from his previous wife. The initial blast of rock and roll had passed, and Don understood, I think, how to slightly tame rock and roll, how to domesticate it to make it safe for this suddenly massive record audience of baby boom teenagers. Kirshner was aggressive in going out and looking for writers, and and he wanted young writers, people who could speak to a younger audience. Alden Music was an inspiration for Barry Gordy, when, a few years after this, he created his own wildly successful hit factory, Motown. Instead of waiting for songwriters to knock on their door, these companies did as much as they could in-house, with a stable of talented songwriters on staff. The first writers to be signed to Alden Music were a 19-year-old Neil Sedaka and his writing partner, Howard Greenfield. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. They wrote Alden Music's first single, Stupid Cupid, for the singer Connie Francis. It did well, hitting number 14 on the Billboard charts in 1958.
Neil Sedaka introduced Kirshner to another songwriter from a rival Brooklyn high school whom he had briefly dated, Carol King. She was only 17, but she'd already been knocking on doors at the Brill Building for a few years. Carol King started out as a 14, 15-year-old just going from Brooklyn into the city and harassing song publishers <laughs> and uh, right away met people like Amit Erdogan at Atlantic Records who saw this talent in her. Kirshner was blown away by Carol King. He signed her and her songwriting partner, Jerry Goffin, to Alden Music in 1960. It was good timing. Goffin and King had just gotten married and were expecting a child. Soon after, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde joined the team. They'd both been bouncing around the Brill Building scene, but found a home with Don Kirshner and Alden Music. Danny was like the father-mother figure to all, us all. And Danny was only basically two years older than me. And all we wanted to do was please Donnie. If Donnie loved our songs, that made our day. It made our life. Kirshner was a master at motivating his staff of young writers. I mean, an artist would come up and Kirshner would call us up and say, hey, kid, the Everly Brothers are up. You know, we'd call Carol and Jerry and they'll tell us. And we'd run to write for the Everly Brothers. Literally, they'd kind of run back to their cubicles and try to knock it out quickly and get back to Donnie Kirshner as fast as they could. If you talk to anyone about the Brill Building era, you'll hear about the cubicles. At Alden Music, the songwriting teams often worked in one giant office space, each in their own cubicle, containing a piano, a chair, and an ashtray. They could hear each other. I mean, all of a sudden you'd hear Carol King next door playing the piano or Ellie Greenwich down the hall. You were continually hearing each other's pianos and music. So everybody knew what everybody else was doing, and everybody borrowed from what the others were doing. Yeah, you'd hear them coming out, but yeah, you know, you didn't listen. Or you would listen. Hey, that's that better than mine? The competition at Alden Music was intense, especially between the married songwriting teams. We're basically like sibling rivalry. We loved it. We had this love-hate relationship with, with Carol and Jerry, and, and anybody there. We would be waiting outside for Carol and Jerry, and Barry and Cynthia to come out of the studio as we were going in. And there was this, like, of course, competition, like, oh, we're going for the same record with the same group. But outside of the, the office, there was no competition. We didn't think about Lieber and Stoller or Otis Blackwell, you know. We just thought the competition was in the office. And if we could get the record over somebody else in the office, that satisfied us. In the fall of 1960, Kirshner asked his writers for a song for the Shirelles. Goffin and King won the job. Will You Love Me Tomorrow went straight to number one and was the first number one single by a girl group. When it sold a million copies, King and Goffin quit their day jobs to write full-time. With that, Alden Music was off to the races. Take good care of my baby. From 1961 to 1963, they had hit after hit break the top 100. The Alden writers were all hitting their strides. In 1961, Howard Greenfield was one of the oldest among them at age 25. Carol King was 19. 
but youth wasn't all that they had in common. I went to Madison High School. It's in Brooklyn, Flatbush. Carol King went to Madison High School. Our rival high school was uh, Lincoln High School. Neil Sedak went to Lincoln High School. Hank Medress of the Tokens went to Lincoln High School. Uh, Neil Diamond went there. And then I think he switched over to Erasmus, which Barbara Streisand went, over, went there too. For some reason, that, er- that area in itself, someone should do a book on that. Just about the music industry and all the talent that came from that area. And I don't know why. I think maybe it's, I mean, we're, what are we, third generation Jews or something? Ken Emerson thinks maybe. Jewish kids were taught to play the piano and took music lessons at higher rates. By nature of their heritage and their upbringing, they were more knowledgeable about mainstream classical music than uh, many other white Americans. That classical background can be heard all over the Brill Building's take on rock and roll, like in the simple fact that the writers wrote on piano instead of guitar, or in the strings that Brill writers began to incorporate into their arrangements. As kids in the 50s, they were also shaped by some major news stories happening close to home. If you were of that age, you were deeply affected by two important events that touched Brooklyn. This is truly an historic day here in Jersey City. A 27-year-old Negro named Jackie Robinson is playing his first game for the Dodger Farm Club. First of all was the integration of baseball by Jackie Robinson, playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Here's the pitch. Swing a long drive into deep left field. It might be that was an important landmark in racial consciousness in America, and they were at the epicenter of that. Secondly was the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Julius Rosenberg and Morton Sobel, convicted of revealing atomic secrets to the Russians, enter the federal building in New York to hear their doom. The Rosenbergs were executed in 1953 for spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. Their defenders thought that they were victims of anti-Semitism and Cold War hysteria. Those events expanded their, their racial consciousness and awareness and also their political awareness and consciousness. They were also picking up on musical and cultural cues from the city around them. This was the height, the absolute peak of Puerto Rican migration. Emerson says that these young Jewish New Yorkers would have been hearing Latin music everywhere. The second album that the great Tito Puente made was... Tito Puente live at Grossinger's, the famous Jewish resort in the Catskills. Their parents danced to this. All the clubs and the beach clubs were full of this. It was uh, ubiquitous. Latin jazz was everywhere in New York. Jason King is a professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU. A lot of the Brill Building writers and producers brought those rhythms into the music that they made. And it has to do with the fact that New York was this fusion epicenter. It was a place where all of these cultures were coming together. The rhythms and sounds of Latin music are all over Brill Building songs. Blame it on the Nova, with its magic spell. Sometimes overtly, like with the Man and Wild song, Blame It on the Bossa Nova, written for Edie Gourmet. But other times, more subtly, the Brazilian buy-on beat is a hallmark of Brill Building arrangements. And it can be heard on countless recordings. There is a rose in Spanish hollow. The most famous Latin dance hall, the Palladium Ballroom, 
was just a few blocks away from the Brill Building at 53rd and Broadway. Every night, artists like Tito Puente and Machito would draw huge audiences of all sorts. It's almost as if Latin music could unite white and black audiences in an appreciation of a music which itself is a melding of white and black music. Like the Latin music it was influenced by, the Brill Building had a remarkably diverse listenership. Jason King says that earlier in the 20th century, you wouldn't have seen that. People in the United States were segregated legally, but also music was segregated. I gotta read in my kitchen. Black music was considered to be raced Nobody music. It was music that was made by black people for black people. And that was the way that black music was conceived in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and even into the 1950s and beyond. The Brill Building represents this moment where whites and blacks are listening to very much the same music for a very short amount of time. It doesn't last that long, but it's a, it's a kind of golden moment in the early 1960s of um, a biracial pop culture. Like the audience, the production process at the Brill Building involved both white and black musicians, but it still had issues. There is this tension there between the kind of ingenious fusion music that the Brill Building produced and then also the kind of asymmetrical power relationships that you see between white and black and men and women. There were some black songwriters in the Brill Building scene, like Rosemarie McCoy, a songwriter whose career began a little earlier in the 1950s. To run my business <laughs> Look who's got business. Oh, I'll have to do what I hate to do. Go ahead and do it. Ain't nobody scared of you. But for the most part, the writers and producers behind these hits were white, and the artists were black. There was a real division of labor at the Brill Building, and artists often didn't get paid in the same way um, that those songwriters and producers did, partly because of the nature of how the music industry works, that songwriters and producers often get paid more than artists, but also because there was a racial component to that, too. Central to those complicated Brill Building dynamics was Phil Spector. Spectre is, of course, the musical genius credited with creating the Wall of Sound production style, but also monstrous in his personal life and currently in prison for second-degree murder. There was something polarizing about him even back in those bro-building days. I think Phil Spector's production of so many black girl groups like the Crystals, the Ronettes, and others really does represent that kind of uncomfortable moment where you have a, a white producer defining the sound and style and sentiment of black women in the 1960s, where those women don't have a voice for themselves, except through their interpretation of lyrics written by men or white people, whether they're men or women. But those black performers didn't necessarily think the Brill Building's dynamics were inequitable. In the 1990s, Mary Rolfing had the chance to interview Eva Boyd about her experiences in the Brill Building system. She said, I wasn't feeling exploited by that environment. I was a singer. I was not a songwriter. The writers gave her material, and she gave voice to that material. So without each other, you know, none of this could have happened. She really wanted me to, to understand that, and I remember saying, write it down. We'll be back with the rest of our New York Icon story about the Brill Building right after this. 
Studio 360. He's true. He's true to me. So girl, you better shut your mouth. We're back with our New York icon story about the Brill Building. Studio 360's Tommy Bazarian picks up the story. From 1961 to 1963, the charts were dominated by Brill Building writers and artists. It seemed like they had found the perfect recipe for efficient pop success. But then... It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard When the British invasion came in, for most of us, we all sort of, all we independent, so to speak, songwriters panicked a bit. You know, and here comes the self-contained groups, and here comes the era of the singer-songwriter, and we sat there and said, well, what are we going to do? The entire industry changes, and the focus is no longer the kind of urbane, polished R&B music coming out of New York, but suddenly all of the music that's coming out of Britain. The Beatles were actually pretty big fans of the Brill Building. Please Please Me included a cover of a Goffin King song, Chains. Chains, my baby's got me locked up in chains, and they ain't the Paul McCartney has said, you know, he and Lennon, their model was Jerry Goffman and Carole King. That's who they wanted to be. They wanted to write songs that good. Another 1960s phenom wasn't so enamored with the Brill Building sound. Unlike most of the songs nowadays are being written uptown in Tin Pan Alley, as most of the folk songs come from nowadays, this, this is a song, this wasn't written up there. This is written somewhere down in the United States. Jerry Goffin thought everything that he had written after he heard Dylan was total crap. They were devastated in, in many ways. Carol King and, and Jerry Goffin felt that Dylan had just shown them up. And at one point, they even gathered together some of their demos that they had made and smashed them in despair. I'm loving, Lord, I love it till I'm dead. Go away from my door and my window, too, right now. It wasn't just that the Beatles and Dylan were good. It was that the way they made music challenged the entire brill-building model. The Beatles showed how much more money a performer could make by writing their own music. And the whole economic model for rock and roll, songwriting and production began to change. Artists like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and others represented a new kind of pop music auteur who was self-contained. And the brill-building model wasn't the hot model anymore. It has to have been terrifying in a way. The market shifted to where it's almost all written and performed by the same people. As the economics of rock music changed, so did the types of people making and listening to it. When the Beatles came, it really resegregated rock and roll. It became weird to talk about African Americans as even performing rock and roll. It became this real white form the priorities of the music industry change completely, and it becomes a kind of refocus away from this biracial pop moment to a much more segregated um, way of listening to music. It's a great moment, but it doesn't last long. Don Kirshner sold Alden Music to Columbia Pictures in 1963, in many ways at the peak of its success. Some Brill writers were able to transition well into the new era. Go into the chapel and rip 
Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Berry enjoyed their greatest success in the mid-60s, with number one hits like Leader of the Pack and Chapel of Love. Some, like Carole King, were able to catch the singer-songwriter wave. King's 1971 album Tapestry won four Grammys and is one of the best-selling albums of all time. But others had a harder time finding their feet without the structure, community, and camaraderie of the Brill Building. I think in some ways the Brill Building songwriters didn't always realize how great their music was. And maybe that's something that Don Kirshner almost made them feel in a way. After all, it was in Kirshner's financial interest to make his writers feel dependent upon him. We never thought the songs we wrote were going to be standards or they're going to be talked about 20 years later, you know? Today, half of the Brill Building is leased by the startup WeWork. It's a workspace for gig economy freelancers who don't have a company office they can go to. And that's kind of how pop songwriters operate these days, too. Instead of a centralized building, they're in home studios, collaborating online. You don't have to worry about someone banging on the piano in the cubicle next door, but something else might be lost. There was like a camaraderie that I think made you write so prolifically back then, because, I mean, it felt good. Even when things were going wrong, it still felt good, you know? It was a feeling. It was a general feeling. It was terrific. To me, I almost didn't think of it as a publishing company. When I look back at it now, it was like a school. It was a great school for songwriters. Tommy Bazarian produced that story. The Brill Building is still home to some big entertainment industry businesses. Paul Simon's publishing company has offices there. So does Saturday Night Live creator Lauren Michaels' production company, Broadway Video. The recordings you heard of Ellie Greenwich and Barry Mann are courtesy of the Joe Smith Collection at the Library of Congress. Additional archival tape was provided by WNYC Archive Collections. New York icons are made possible by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. One of Carole King and Jerry Goffin's biggest hits was The Locomotion for Little Eva. It went to number one in 1962. And it wasn't just a song. It was a dance involving swinging your hips, jumping up, jumping back, making a chain, and then a chug-a-chug motion like a railroad train. I'm doing it right here in the studio. It's a shame you can't see me. Anyhow, the early 60s were all about bad dance songs, like Chubby Checker's The Twist and the Olympics' Holly Gully. But it's another 
would-be fad song from that era, one I'm betting you don't know, that fascinates our producer Evan Chung. It came out at the end of 1961 and promptly fell into oblivion until a copy wound up in Evan's hands. I grabbed it out of some neglected rack of dusty 45s in a Chicago record store. It must have been the title that caught my eye, Mugmates. Because what is a mugmate? So I brought it over to the listening station and dropped the needle. I go for coffee. Yay, 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 yay. You go for coffee. Whoa, 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 whoa. We both go for coffee. So let's be mug mates. Yay, 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 mug mates. I mean, how can you not love this song? Or be completely baffled by it? Because the singer Eddie Hodges goes on to explain exactly what mug mates are. Oh, the newest craze in the teenage world is a mug mart is and hers. So my darling, meet me in the coffee shop and we'll do what everyone does. What everyone does? Really? If you missed it, being mug mates, apparently, is the practice of a teenage couple decorating a pair of matching coffee mugs to show they're going steady. Like a ceramic promise ring, I guess. And if the song is to be believed, his and hers mugs were the latest craze in the teenage world, which is a claim you hear all the time in songs from this era, that some craze has spread, passed from teenager to teenager, like mono. The dance fads are the most famous ones. The Jerk, The Swim, The Popeye Joe. But there are also songs about how all the kids these days are hula hooping, or surfing, or fraternizing in sleepwear. Don't you know it's the latest craze? Having a party wearing your PJs. I always wonder about the claims made in these songs. Was there really a phenomenon around the Watusi and the mashed potato and they just had to write a song about it? Or was it the other way around? Did they make up a dance, which then became a craze because of the song? It's the age-old question. What came first, the funky chicken or the egg? I actually found an answer for the most famous example. never was a dance, The Locomotion, until after it was a number one hit record and everybody says, how does this dance go? So little Eva had to make up a dance. That's Carole King in 1981. But I get why a songwriter would invent a fake dance. You convince teens that everybody else is already doing it, the teens start requesting the song, the dance actually becomes a craze, you sell a bunch of records, and then you live easy for the rest of your life on your turkey trot royalties. But how do you explain mugmates? What's the angle here? I mean, it just seems like such a bonkers and specific social practice to invent. Using a matched pair of paint-it-yourself coffee mugs as an emblem of romantic exclusivity among teenagers? How is that even supposed to work logistically? Where do you keep these mugs? Are you just supposed to carry them around with you in your knapsack at all times? Did teenagers even drink coffee anyway? I needed to find out, was Mugmates ever a thing, even for a moment? And if not, why would someone want to make it a thing? Hello? 
Hi, is this Eddie? Yeah. So I called up someone who might know something about it. Eddie Hodges, the guy who sang Milkmates. Oh, gosh. That's... <laughs> Evan. <laughs> that was a long time ago, man. So how old would you have been in 1962? Oh, let's see. Uh, probably about 14 or 15. Now, even by that age, Eddie was already a seasoned veteran. Well, I started singing when I was very young. People kind of knew me as the singing kid. You know that little kid, Eddie Hodges, who lives upstairs? Yeah. Sings great. I'm going to bring him down to Joe the bartender and sing for the gang down there. This is Eddie on The Honeymooners in 1952. Eddie ended up a very successful child star. His career was built on a chain reaction of fortunate run-ins and chance encounters. It started when a stranger stopped him on the street in Times Square. A lady uh, asked me where I got my red hair. I said it came with my head, and she started laughing and uh, gave me her card. And She said to call the number on the card. So uh, we called the number on the card, and it was to name that tune office. Name that tune now back tonight and trying for $20,000 are Eddie Hodges, the 10-year-old schoolboy, and his partner, Major John Glenn Jr., the Marine Corps jet pilot. Before he was the first American in orbit, John Glenn was Eddie's Name That Tune partner. Coincidentally, they were on the show the same day as the Sputnik launch. Eddie, would you like to take a trip to the moon? No, sir. I like it fine right here. <laughs> the John Glenn-Eddie Hodges team won five weeks in a row and split a $50,000 grand prize. The real jackpot for Eddie, though, was that a Broadway composer happened to be watching. After the show, he called Eddie up to ask him to audition for a new musical. And uh, they had me say some lines, and they said, uh, now do it with a lisp, and I didn't know what a lisp was, so they told me how to do that. So I read the lines from the paper with a lisp, and they offered me the part of Winthrop in uh, The Music Man. Have you ever been to Gary, Indiana? No, I never have. Never been to Gary. Be kind of neat. The Music Man was a smash hit, and Eddie spent over a year starring on Broadway, which led to the next lucky break. Frank Sinatra came to see the show and offered me the movie role in uh, A Hole in the Head. Because he had high hopes. He had high hopes. After a hole in the head was the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Of course, I'll have to go down the river to New Orleans first. Wouldn't that be the beatenest, Jim? New Orleans. It was, uh, it was just a constant run of things after that. After conquering Broadway, television, and the movies, in 1961, Eddie added teen pop star to his resume. I had a really nice hit record called I'm Gonna Knock on Your Door. I'm gonna knock on your door. Now, after all the career-making run-ins, the talent scout, the astronaut, the Broadway composer, old blue eyes, now came the strangest encounter. Do you remember how they presented this song to you? Uh, yeah. A few months after he hit the pop charts, Eddie and his producer got paid a visit from a group of men. They were representatives of an organization. They said that there was this song suggesting that teenagers decorate their own mugs. People could put their names on them and paint them and put pictures on them, that kind of thing. They said P. 
people could be mug mates. And I said, well, that's kind of catchy. That's, that's interesting. And we went in the studio and got it. Instead of carving our initials on an old oak tree, I've got a better plan. We'll use two coffee mugs, one for you, one for me. I know you'll understand that'll make us mug mates. Eddie recorded the song for this organization, and it was the last he ever heard from them. Nothing ever happened. I never heard anything about it after that. So no interviews, no nothing? Nothing. It seems like a lot of effort to write this song and find someone to record it and then just to do nothing with it. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't know what happened. We never, we never did find out. So who were these people that recruited Eddie to sing that Mugmates was the latest craze and then vanished? It seems to me that this organization were an organization of coffee growers, maybe. I, I don't even remember the name of it. Whoever this group was, I knew they had an interest in reaching teenagers. So I consulted the most authoritative source I could think of on the subject. Back issues of Seventeen magazine. In between articles like, what does his handwriting show about him? In my case, hesitancy and a certain lack of confidence. I found a series of full-page ads touting even more outlandish claims in the song. That mugmates are busting out all over. That the niftiest party idea of the season is a BYOM party, bring your own mugmate. That the new after-prom ritual is a mugmate breakfast. Allegedly, mugmates had become such a craze, they had to issue a special warning to girls about the mugmate Lothario a fellow who can't resist playing the field, a gay deceiver who collects hearts, and who has a mantle full of mugmates to prove it. And, in small print, at the bottom of each page, it said, For a free folder of mugmate inspirations and simple directions, write to the Pan American Coffee Bureau. So I had my answer. But what exactly was the Pan American Coffee Bureau? Why were they meddling in the courtship rituals of high school students? And what gave them the idea that they could just invent a cultural practice and people would adopt it? Well, it turns out, because they'd actually done it before. You'll get the next chapter of The Mystery of Mugmates after this short break on Studio 360. Looks like you need a... Studio 360. We'll both be mug mates. Yay, 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 mug mates. Whoa, 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 mug mates. Means we're going together. Now, back to producer Evan Chung's quest to uncover the mysterious origins of the Mugmates song. It turns out this so-called craze was brewed up by something called the Pan-American Coffee Bureau, which I learned was an organization funded by the 10 coffee-growing nations of South and Central America. But why? Why would Brazil and Colombia and Costa Rica pool their resources and invest them in this? Convincing teenage sweethearts in the U.S. that they should have decorated mugs to show that they're going steady. To figure it out, I had to learn a bit more about the organization's history. 
The Pan American Coffee Bureau grew out of the fact that coffee was really struggling in those days. The coffee growers were being hammered. Mark Pendergrast is the author of Uncommon Grounds, The History of Coffee and How It Transformed Our World. Americans weren't drinking as much coffee as the people in Brazil and the other countries wanted. Now, there was a good reason why North Americans were buying less coffee then. Because the coffee was so terrible. This coffee is criminal. Coffee roasters were peddling blends of cheap, low-quality beans. Your coffee just doesn't taste any good. And they were also brewing it with percolators. Listen to it, Perk. Which is a terrible way to drink coffee. What's wrong with the coffee? Bad taste. Even worse than the percolated stuff was the instant coffee. This is coffee? So it was kind of a disaster. Pretty harsh. Well, so's your coffee. They were cheapening their blend. It's worse every day. They were losing market share. Oh, no. They were basically floundering around, not knowing what to do. In stepped the Pan American Coffee Bureau with a solution. In 1952, they came up with the idea of the coffee break. Everyone from the janitor up to the general manager grabs a cup and we stop for the coffee break. Here's the pitch. In the middle of the workday, if everybody at the office stepped away from their desks for 10 minutes, had a cup of joe, it would boost morale and improve productivity. Coffee break! The Coffee Bureau had a $2 million annual budget to convince people that the coffee break was the new trend. And it worked. A coffee break is almost an American institution. Within four years, 73% of all American workers were taking coffee breaks. Coffee break! The Bureau had made coffee breaks a thing, basically out of nothing. More coffee breaks meant more coffee was being sold. Consumption was up. Mission accomplished. Except there was a problem. Their advertising was aimed almost exclusively at adults. Young people were actually drinking less coffee now. The image of coffee was that it was a boring product for adult business people and housewives, not something that you were going to drink as a teenager. Now, why was this a problem? Well, because there were a hell of a lot of teenagers all of a sudden. The first wave of the baby boom was in high school now, and it marked the birth of true teenage culture. They had their own music, their own movies. Packed with the dangerous thrills of hot-blooded youngsters showing off to hot rod girls. Their own cars, and they had their own money, which increasingly they were spending on something more fun-seeming than coffee. Come alive, you're in the Pepsi generation. What they wanted was to have girlfriends and love and energy, and that's what was being conveyed by the Coca-Cola and the Pepsi ads. Who is the Pepsi generation? Just about everyone with the young view of things. Active, livelier people with a liking for Pepsi-Cola. Many advertisers were telling the coffee people, look, you have to do something because the sodas are eating your lunch. The president of the National Coffee Association even wrote a deliciously overwrought article in the tea and coffee trade journal warning his colleagues of the dire situation they had on their hands. The very thought of it conjures up to me the vision of a modern Pied Piper of Hamlin. Today, the Pied Piper is a man fashioned of metal and glass. 
His torso is one giant cola bottle, and his limbs are formed of soft drink and beer cans, strung loosely so that he makes a lot of noise as he walks through the marketplace with our youth flocking after him. Coffee, thus far, has no such Pied Piper. But I wondered, was it just a marketing problem? Or could it be biological? Is there actually something innate in teenagers that makes them hate coffee and like Coke? It's one of the most fundamental mysteries, is why do we like the foods and beverages we do? Julie Manella is a researcher at the Monell Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia. I'm a developmental biopsychologist, so I study the biological basis of behavior. Her research focuses on how taste develops in young people. Well, when you study taste in children, you realize that as a group, they're living in different sensory worlds than us. Both the child and the young teenager have sensory systems that are really going to draw them to sugar and salt and avoid bitters. So yes, in general, children do have a preference for sweet things over bitter things like coffee. And this makes sense. The child is born into this world preferring that which they need to survive. Sweet is our signal for calories, which are sources of energy. And it's also the predominant quality of human milk. And for bitterness, it may be that the child has this biology to particularly warn against that which is potential toxins, because that's what bitter taste really is a signal for in many cases. But she says it's not so simple as just sweet good, bitter bad, end of story. A lot of our taste preferences are learned. Like all learning, it's repeated exposure that builds on the familiar. Children will learn eight to 10 exposures to a food will increase their acceptance of the food. What mother eats, what siblings eat, what friends eat, the context of eating, all play a role in defining whether you grow to like it or not. You learn to like the foods you eat. So repetition and cultural context, they are big parts of determining what foods and drinks we like. And they can override that predisposition against bitterness. We know this because there are places on Earth where kids do like bitter drinks. Look at Argentina and mate. You know, at around two years of age, the child's being exposed to this tea and grows to like mate. It's a beautiful example of a cultural practice. In 1961, the Pan American Coffee Bureau said it was time to invent their own cultural practice. I mean, they'd done it before, right? They turned the coffee break into an American institution out of practically nothing. Surely they could do it again and engineer a teenage craze. And the craze was going to be decorated coffee mugs. Ain't a couple of hearts on two coffee mugs. It's so much fun. Hang them on the wall, side by side. The two hearts become one. But nobody became mug mates painting your little coffee mugs so that your girlfriend could have hers and you could have yours, I, I don't think it was compelling or convincing in the least. So it was, you know, a lame attempt to try to engage that generation of young people, but it failed miserably. Except for some reason in Japan, where it became a minor hit. <laughs> But the Mugmates campaign just did not get at what American teenagers wanted. And look, I sympathize. I don't know how to interact with teenagers. They remain terrifying ciphers to me. 
And I think it takes a pretty savvy marketer to understand how to reach them. The corporate men at the Pan American Coffee Bureau were clearly not that. So it's not that teenagers can't be turned onto crazes by Madison Avenue or by songwriters. Clearly they can, but they won't be pandered to. And that all began at this historical mid-century moment, when teens realized that they could decide what crazes they would adopt or reject, that the kids held the power, not them. The adults, honey, this isn't their world anymore. It's going to be ours. So is there an alternate timeline where coffee got there first with better ads and created the Folgers generation? I don't know, but they didn't. And the consequence for the coffee industry was that the image of coffee stayed the same. A boring, gross drink for square grown-ups. And then Starbucks happened. Marketing fun-sounding, sugary drinks like mocha cookie crumble frappuccinos. And that's coupled with the rise of trendy coffee shops selling pour-overs of single-origin roasts. In the last few decades, there has been a revolution in the image of coffee. Coffee has become the hip drink for young people, and they're willing to pay a lot of money for a latte or a cappuccino or cold brew nitro coffee, that sort of thing. These days, coffee consumption among teens has been trending up, and soda consumption is going down. So... Mission accomplished. Except... Why would anybody want to take away from the sugar-sweetened beverage industry of colas to make kids drink more coffee when they should be drinking neither of them? They're going to get addicted to the psychoactive components, which could have side effects on insomnia and nervousness and jitterness and hyperactivity and stomach aches. Am I missing something? Fair point. So maybe it was a good thing, ultimately, that teenagers never actually had a mugmates craze. That, as far as I can tell, the only person the campaign ever reached was me, more than a half century later. And now, I guess, you. So, let's be mugmates. So let's be mugmates. Studio 360's Evan Chung produced that story. Gabriel Roth read the excerpt from the Tea and Coffee Trade Journal. It's time for the percolator. It's time for the percolator. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. The production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Evan Chung, Zoe Saunders, Sam Kim, Morgan Flannery, Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He was just an aspiring entrepreneur who had a real feel for what could sell. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. It's so familiar, Tom Hanks can hum the entire theme from memory. It's a movie that changed cinema. There was nothing like it before, and there really has been very little since. And conjured the future. Open the garage door, please, Alexa. The latest in our series, American Icons, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Next time on Studio 360.